Listener Production. We live in this world now where we cannot escape work. Work is everywhere. And so creating a four-day week is maybe a more simple way of creating that boundary. I think there's also a growing recognition that things like four-day weeks do have significantly positive impacts on productivity. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. In Iceland in 2015, the four-day working week was trialled where workers moved from a 40-hour week to 35 hours without a reduction in pay. What the trial found was that productivity remained the same, but well-being increased, and there was a reduction in stress and burnout. So if this study is valid and evidence-based, which it is, and we've just come out of the greatest remote working social experiment, lockdowns, pandemics, and working from home, then how does the four-day work week stack up? Now, in 2022... Aaron McEwen and I promised to address this topic in our last podcast together. And so today he and I want to discuss, debate and ideate around what's possible with the four-day work week. Aaron is a behavioural scientist, a coaching psychologist and vice president for global research and advisory firm Gartner. He's a thought leader on the future of work and a sought-after advisor on all things work. So it's time to work out if the four-day work week is good for us, good for productivity and good for society. Aaron, welcome to Fast Track and thanks for coming back. Oh, totally. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Let's start with those studies and also the definition of a four-day work week. What does it look like? Is it just every Friday everybody's going to take it off or is it a bit more complex than that? Uh, I guess it can be as simple or as complex as you like it to be. Um, So I think the most common version is that employees essentially choose one day of the week where uh, they don't come into work. So they still get paid, uh, but they don't actually come into work or log on to their systems. Some organisations will choose to have their employees kind of stagger that, you know, so that they've always got an operation happening. But other employers have certainly experimented with um, essentially everybody taking that particular day off. Mm. So it feels like we've been talking about this topic ever since I began working and the promise of a a four-day work week always seemed to be quite elusive and out there. I know the Scottish government have invested a seven-figure sum to trial the four-day work week there at the moment and the Spanish government have also put in some initiatives. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can tell me of some others that are there. What's causing this momentum now for some action around the the working week? Uh, I think it's coming from lots of different directions. So there's a lot of countries, uh, Belgium is another one, that are deeply concerned about the rising impact of mental health issues. And partly that's because, you know, we know that, and if I can say this quite frankly, work is actually killing people. And I know that that's a a bold and loaded statement, um, but the data is actually pretty clear that working excessive hours has become endemic across uh, many countries. 
and that there is a growing correlation between the number of those hours worked and the incidence of things like stroke and heart attack, stress, anxiety, depression. You know, recently the World Health Organization classified burnout as a, uh, as a real certifiable illness. Um, and, and again, that's because we are starting to see these just incredibly high rates of burnout. So I guess for, you know, countries that have state-sanctioned or state-funded um, health systems, you know, there, there is a strong desire to positively impact some of those things. So work can lead to dis-ease or disease. I think there's also a growing recognition among particular employers or experts in the, in the world of work that things like four-day weeks do have positive and significantly positive impacts on things like productivity, um, staff engagement, etc. So that's kind of the bigger backdrop. I think if you get closer to what are we experiencing right now, well, we're seeing like the great resignation, you know, something we spoke about last time. We're seeing these kind of once-in-a-generation tight talent markets all over the world. And so many organisations are looking for creative ways to both increase the uh, well-being of their workforces, the engagement of their workforce and the productivity, but also looking for attractive ways to cut through the noise and uh, attract and retain the best talent in the market. Mm. There's a thing that, you know, we often refer to at Gartner called HR as PR. Um, and I think a lot of the talk around a four-day week uh, kind of does fall into the HR as PR but the good news is that some organisations and countries are taking it pretty seriously. Have you got any examples of companies that have done this and done it well and where it's not just been PR but actually, <laughs> yeah. actually really worked? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the classic one that always comes to mind is uh, Guardian, uh, a New Zealand-based company that was one of the first to kind of get publicity around uh, trialling a four-day week. And, um, you know, they conducted both what I would call, I guess, anecdotal research and that was very clear that the four-day week positively impacted on engagement and productivity retention of staff and generally employees reported just feeling much happier feeling like they were better people not just better workers that example from guardian did go on to be studied in a more formal way and again uh, they got very consistent outcomes that it was an incredibly positive experience across all those measures that we just spoke about mm. So when I think about a four-day work week, I think, yay, as an individual, fantastic. As an employee, uh, I think, oh, no, that's going to be such a headache. Productivity will drop. I'll have much more stress in my small business to manage all the people around that. But you're telling me that productivity increases and doesn't decrease. And I think there's a bit of a myth out there that by employers that it does decrease. So is this proven research that says productivity and wellbeing will increase? Well, the, the few studies, you know, and, and by studies I mean um, evidence-based research that has been done does actually support those productivity increases. So the anecdotal evidence is very strong. There's a growing body of more rigorous evidence that is also showing those outcomes. But I think part of what you have to kind of look at is we've had declining productivity for years, ironically, until the pandemic happened um, and then people got the opportunity to work from home and productivity increased. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. I didn't realise that that was a fact. 
Yeah, well, productivity has either been declining in many Western countries or flatlining. So, you know, even though we're getting gains in things like automation that we would expect, digitalization that we would expect to increase productivity, we're not really seeing substantive increases in that productivity. And in many places, it's declining. And by the way, I do want to point out productivity is a really bad measure of this stuff. (laughs) You know, it's probably the wrong question to ask. And the reason I say that is that where this becomes really interesting is in knowledge work. And I often say that the future of work is going to be dominated by the work that the robots can't do. So productivity is great for a factory setting. It's great for a bunch of other settings where the work is more predictable, the output's predictable, etc. Um, But in the modern world of knowledge work, knowledge work is complex. It's cognitively taxing. It requires creativity. And that value bar just keeps rising as automation and artificial intelligence becomes even more pronounced in in those workforces. So knowledge work is human work. And humans don't work very well (laughs) when they're tired and stressed and underfed and badly exercised and suffering from poor health, et cetera, et cetera. So when we think about productivity in the context of a modern knowledge workforce, we've got to think about it differently. And so knowledge work is often deep work and deep work is hard to do if you don't have the right conditions around it. So there's a lot of evidence out there that supports the fact that um, if you think of work in a similar way to we think of athletes, you know, athletes don't run a marathon, you know, for um, 12 hours a day, five days a week, you know, they perform in bursts. So there's a lot of preparation, there's a lot of training that goes into the performance, and then there is a rest and recovery period. The question, I guess, is, is a weekend adequate recovery period for most people. And and I don't think it is. No, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I'm trying to trial my own four-day working week, managing it. But I wonder how the logistics are going to work for big organisations. Like there's enough of a headache around how we're going to contract about coming back to a hybrid workplace. How do we contract for a four-day working week? Are the logistics easier than I imagine? Well, You know, we had this big lesson, you know, the same concerns were being expressed for 20 or 30 years in relation to um, working from home. Mm -hmm. You know, oh my goodness, like, how are we going to do that? We can't trust people. Productivity is going to drop. People will be distracted by their washing machines. Like, it was just this ridiculous rhetoric. Um, And here we are three years into the largest work from home experiment and all of the data suggests that the only risk, <laughs> you know, the only risk of, of uh, working from home is that you'll probably work even harder. You'll work more hours, right? And, and so this is why I think there's a couple of reasons why the four-day week is suddenly on the agenda in a very serious way. One is that it's, you know, talking about four-day week versus other things is probably not the right conversation to have. It's, it's more about how do we create boundaries in this new world of hybrid work, which is absolutely here to stay. Uh, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, how do we create boundaries? You know, so how do we actually protect workers from this increasingly insidious creep of 
work encroaching into their lives um, and taking up all of their spare time. Because here's the thing, we have to remember that, you know, 30 years ago, you, you weren't checking teams at 12 o'clock at night. You know, you left the office, you packed up whatever you had and you went home and then that was kind of it. You might write, you know, send a fax off. <laughs> it took a while for the fax to come back. Um, we live in this world now where we cannot escape work. Work is everywhere. And, and so creating a four-day week is maybe a more simple way of creating that boundary. Mm. Um, yes, we might extend the weekend, but it doesn't have to be the weekend. It could be Wednesday that we take off. Uh, it could be half of Monday and half of Friday. There's lots of different ways you can slice that cake. But I think what we're actually looking for is, a, is a, this opportunity to very clearly say, I am finished work now. And if you're on a day off, people tend to respect that. Mm. But if you've clocked off, they don't respect that. You're always still available. As one client described it, work is like water under the door. It just seeps through <laughs> and you can't, yeah. you can't seal it off. So that's the digital world. That's right. For the system to support this, does legislation, as they've done in Scotland and Spain currently, and I'm sure you've got many more examples, is legislation important for this to be able to work? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to be able to say that I trust organisations to get this right, but I don't. And I've been very vocal about this. The world has moved on when it comes to hybrid work, except for boards and and senior executives at organisations, they are still dragging their feet on this thing. So I suspect that they will drag their feet on a four-day week as well. But they might not be in control of it. And, and what I mean by that is that employees want it. Absolutely clear. You speak to anybody. And it's like, yes, I would like to have Friday off so I can spend some time with me, spend some time with my family. Uh, spend some time catching up on chores or whatever it is that I need to run my household and my life. And one of the big things we've seen through the pandemic is people reconnecting with their families, their pets, their communities, their hobbies, their local um, environment. Uh, that's, I think, an important thing. So that's the first step. So employees want it. The second thing is that we have this incredibly strong candidate market at the moment. So there's a lot of money being thrown at people to leave their current jobs and join another one. And for a lot of organisations, they can't afford the counteroffer. And counteroffers aren't particularly effective in any case. We know that. Um, so if you're faced with, I'm potentially having my staff poached for an additional $80,000 a year and you can't afford to match that offer, What's happening is many organisations are considering saying, well, look, how about if you stay on your current package but you work a four-day week? Now, that is more economically feasible. And I think once we start to see that build up and more and more people realise that you have the opportunity to work and companies realise that it is not negatively impacting on their productivity, uh, that they end up with happier workers who produce better knowledge work and higher quality work, you can start to see that the momentum will build. And I think it will build very, very quickly. So if the Australian government were to legislate, what would they be legislating for? 
Well, I, I don't think in Australia it will be legislated. But, you know, if you look at parts of Western Europe like Belgium, France, I think it will probably be legislated or at least trialled in countries like that. What I think will more likely happen in Australia is that we might see the right to disconnect legislated. And I do think that this is an important part of the mix. So, yes, it's great to be given the day off, but if your employer continues to contact you on that day off, it's not really a day off. And so I think what's more likely in the Australian context is that, is that we do see in the public sector the right to disconnect legislation uh, being enacted. And maybe the perfect example is to not only have a four-day week, but to have that day protected. And I think that's really important. And does that mean I can't be sacked if I don't answer the phone or the email? Is that what the right to disconnect is? Or is it really a contract between employer and employee? Well, I think at the basic level, it's if it's legislated, it is contractual. And um, we do have some of the first right to disconnect legislation. Australia was introduced by the Victorian police. And I believe, I may be incorrect in this, but my understanding is that the organisation can be required to compensate an employee if they are contacted. So, you know, there is some bite in that legislation and, and it could lead to fines, for example, as well for organisations that, that ignore it. But I think for the average organisation, this should be not really a contract but a, a set of principles. Like, how did we get to the point where it's okay for an employer to contact you on time when you are not being paid? You know, what we're talking about there is, if we call it frankly, it's wage theft, Now, we don't like to use that term, but I would argue that 80% of knowledge workers in Australia are regularly uh, having their wages stolen. (laughs) And that's a a serious issue. Mm. And not only are they getting their wages stolen, but they're getting their health stolen. Mm. They're getting their relationships with their partners and their children and their communities stolen when we allow these kind of um, productivity-obsessed workforce cultures to proliferate. And that's kind of where we are today is that the pandemic was a wake-up call. And I think people kind of paused and went, hang on a sec, this isn't right. Mm. And I need to kind of get back my humanity (laughs) and not uh, put everything into work. It feels like you're describing a bit of a divide too at the moment between what is the employee experience, which is I can go almost anywhere and be anywhere and do the work. And as you described it, the board and executive team experience. And I'm hearing that too. So is that your understanding of that sort of divide? Yeah, we we did some very specific research and we found that the lived experience of and the perceptions of executives were vastly different to employees during the pandemic. And it's really interesting because this... It's a very complex um, area that we're about to go into, but, it, but you know, this comes down to culture. And, um, you know, the old way that we kind of look at culture is it's this homogenous culture, you know, like you want your people aligned to this big set of values and the way that the company operates. Um, what we're finding now is that the pandemic has accelerated a stronger focus on, on multiple cultures or microcultures. You know, so during the pandemic, our close relationships got strengthened 
our distant networks became weakened. Now, what we found in that research with executives was that when asked, executives said that they felt more connected to their organisation, they felt more committed to the vision and the mission of the company, they felt more trust within their executive team with each other. And I think what we kind of, what we're describing there is that, you know, executives formed their own microcultures and those became very strong through the pandemic. Their experience was shared in the sense that they were probably in the office more often than their employees. And there was a lot of elements to that experience that were shared. But for employees, they didn't feel as connected to the purpose of the organisation. They didn't feel that they were trusted. There were huge disconnects. And I imagine they weren't having the big conversation about the crisis and how to deal with it. They were being more likely micromanaged to deal with the crisis. I don't know, that comes to mind. Yeah, uh, kind of yes and no. So <laughs> I often joke about this. Um, I reflect on this very short period of time, at least here in Australia, uh, between the, the months of April and June-ish of 2020. And it was a period that I basically describe as employees started working from home and they worked out how to work from home. Whilst leadership and managers were still working out how to use Zoom. And for this brief period of two months, the meetings stopped, the micromanagement stopped, and employees were left with space. And that's why they fell in love with working from home, because they finally were able to work from home, which they wanted to do for a long time. But they also had the space to think and do that deep knowledge work. And they were given more autonomy to work it out themselves. And I would argue that maybe they produced some of the best work of their <laughs> professional lives during that period. But then, of course, what happened was that the structures of control started to come back in, the monitoring happened. And guess what happened then? People's positive experience turned into a negative one where they just felt overwhelmed and overworked and they couldn't escape, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, there's a huge lesson in this that we've always known, which is if you want something to happen, sometimes you have to get out of your own way. And executives that I've been working with for more than two decades have all been saying, you know, I want a more innovative workforce. I want a workforce that's responsive, that's agile, uh, that can think for themselves and do the right thing for customers. Well, guess what? Get out of their way. And they might just do that for you. If you try and regain the control, the top-down management structures, the authoritarian structures, um, you're in for a really hard time in a hybrid world. Wow. I can't wait to see if we can really nail this and bring the best of what we've learned from the pandemic. The research that says work is killing us, let's go to a four-day week and see if we can make this work. It would be so uplifting to think that that might be possible. And not just for workers and organisations. I mean, the thing that strikes me, because I hear this every day, is that there's a lot of pressure from politicians to bring people back to offices to inject money into the economy. Uh, there's this belief that if we bring people back to offices, they're going to uh, reignite the CBD. Imagine what a four-day week would do for the economy. If millions of people found themselves with a Friday to themselves, 
What are they going to do? Are they going to sit at home on their couch because that's where they've been working? No, of course not. They're going to go out. They're going to spend money at restaurants. They're going to go on long weekends. They're going to go to zoos. They're going to go to parks. They're going to go to bars. So rather than trying to drag people back into this world of work that is frankly over, maybe think about progressively moving towards something that has more promise. So I think the four-day week offers solutions to many, many of our challenges, not just how employees want to think or what, they're, what they want to do with their weekends. Aaron McEwen, as always, I'm totally inspired and stimulated by this conversation. I hope we can get there. Thank you so much for your time today and the interesting conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.